Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is a proud member of the FanHub 100. Football without fans is nothing, so we've partnered with FanHub to put fans first. Search FanHub app to play your part in the journey. Hi, I'm Mark Shardlow, and you're listening to 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast. Well, hello there, dear listener. Thank you for joining us for part two of our interview with Mark Shardlow. If you missed part one, go back to 1865.football and check it out, as Mark talks about his experiences of getting started as Nottingham Forest's first regular matchday commentator. Also about his experiences of meeting Brian Clough, who at the time was the most famous football manager in the world. But now we go over to Mark to hear more about his experiences of reporting on Forest in the late 80s and also getting Clough on his very first radio phone-in. By the end of the decade, you're the sports editor at BBC Radio Nottingham. Was it different dealing with Cloughy on that more regular basis once you'd joined Radio Nottingham and that, that sort of bigger broadcasting institution? Yeah, so that was, um, so I started in 1988 as the sports editor at Radio Nottingham. And um, yeah, I we went there and we, we sort of changed how Radio Nottingham did sport. They didn't, you know, it was very similar to the hospital radio days, really. They didn't do commentaries back, back then at all. And um, so I sort of saved money with various things that they did and made a bid to do commentaries which the the station manager agreed so we did um a forest commentary one week and not the following week we just did the away matches we could only do second half commentary still under the fa regulations and if we wanted to do a home game um which we sometimes wanted to do midweek because we did midweek sports shows we had to phone um the forest club secretary paul white at six o'clock, six thirty on match day, 
to get permission to do the commentary. And if we got permission to do the commentary, we weren't allowed to announce it until kickoff. So, um, yeah, they were, they were interesting in different times. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, Brian wasn't in the best of health at times during that period. He was a little bit more erratic. And, again, though, there weren't press officers. So what you had to do on a, to get your pre-match interview, which these days are like one o'clock on a Thursday or whatever, you know, and the press teams will sort it all out and there'll be a manager and a player. Would you, you turn up on a, it might be a Thursday and it might be a Friday, uh, but you, there's no way of knowing. So you had to turn up at Thursday and it might be before training and it might be after training. So you need to turn up at like nine o'clock and catch them beforehand you know, Clough and the players and, and try and judge the mood. And they might say, no, not, not today. Or they might say, try us again after training. So you sort of training might finish at half 10. It might finish 11 or match at half 11. So you sort of a lot of hanging around. And then on a Thursday it might happen or it might not happen. And if it didn't happen, you'd repeat it on a Friday. So, and no one had to talk to you. So there was no, no sort of set interview with the manager or, set interview with players and we probably only got three, four interviews with, with um, Brian over that year. Um, and player wise, some weeks we struggled to get interviews, uh, but the likes of Neil Webb and Lee Chapman and uh, Brian Laws were always accommodating. So, and Steve Sutton. So there'd always be the regulars to, to, to fall back on, but it was at times it was challenging as a journalist, you know, cause you're, uh, and I guess, like, I was new to the role as well. So you need to, as you, some, as you sort of alluded to, you sort of build relationships and establish that without a regular pattern. It's quite hard to, to get into that. So uh, it was a, a challenge to get content at times in those first few months of covering Forest back in 88. Uh, and, um, yeah, Brian was just more elusive and he was doing less and less. You know, he wasn't on the chat shows too much. Uh, he, he at times was reclusive. Um, um, but when he did speak, you know, it was always gold. It was always dynamite. And so the first question is, did he remember you as being the young man from Hospital Radio when you took on the editor role? Well, I don't think so. I'd like to think so, but I don't think he did. Um, and it was it was a harder time to try and get that one-to-one relationship as well, which you, you could easily get now with a, with a, a manager. It might be more superficial but you'd see, you know, if you go along now, you see Chris Hewton, you know, every at the same time every week and you build that relationship just by being in a room together, a little bit of chat. You didn't really get that at, at the time. And so, you know, and, and he'd still got his um, his loyal um, uh, journalists from the European days, you know, the likes of Pat Murphy, who he was particularly close to. So, um, yeah, it was a, a bit different, I think, it's fair to say. And the second question, I suppose, is that, um, you know, you, obviously things were operating in a very different way. Uh, when you say pre-match press conference, which is obviously the phrase we'd use now, are we talking about, you know, a, a snatched conversation on Trent's side or in the car park? Yes, yeah, the car park. So you waited in the car park or next to the Jubilee Club, as it was then. Yeah. Um, and your interview would probably be in the car park or it might be... Um, it probably uh, probably in the trophy room, something like that. Well, you might get an interview in there. And, and likewise, 
post-match, there was nothing on the pitch. It was all like waiting with the fan, you know, where the fans wait for uh, autographs today. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. where journalists waited with their uh, tape recorders and their, their notebooks um, back, back in the day then. There was um, a lot of hanging around. So I think, again, maybe for the benefit of some of the younger listeners, it's worth reminding ourselves, actually, the late 80s and very early 90s, Forest were one of the best teams in the country. So did that make it, presumably that made it more enjoyable for you as one of the key journalists who are covering Forest, but did it also do anything to change your relationship between the journalists and the club? Um, well, they were, that was, I mean, Clough, Clough's second team there was fantastic, I think, you know, the the, the, the signings, Pierce and Webb and, and Chapman that we talked about and the locals that came in, Nigel and uh, Dares and Stevie Hodge and, and uh, they just played good football and they were, you know, they were sort of top six, weren't they? And the, the trophies came back again. Um, I... I didn't stay in the job long because of what happened in April 1989. So I sort of moved away from full-time sport and football and just worked on a some Saturday afternoons. So I probably missed out on the 1991. I did a bit of presentation in the studio for 91, but I didn't have that same regular contact. So, um, so it's, I probably can't say, but I think it, I, I do know that, um, Martin Fisher came along after me, you know, he, he built great relationships with the club and with some of the players. So, uh, it definitely helps when a team is winning. And that's why as a journalist, you know, you, people sort of say, oh, you journalists, you want your team, you know, this team to lose, that team to lose. No, no, the team, team is winning. Uh, everyone's happy, it's easier to get content and uh, it's a much happier life than the team that's losing when it's fractious and difficult and accusations flying around. And of course, just uh, very briefly, it's worth pointing out that um, uh, Martin Fisher, who, who, who took on the role, also a Derby fan. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's quite, quite strange, isn't it, really? You know, and I don't think you'd ever know with Martin like commentating on Forest. And hopefully, you know, no one ever knew from me and all my years on Eastman today, you try and be impartial. Maybe you didn't, maybe I didn't need to. But, you know, you get, you get a fair amount of social media, sometimes stick, sometimes it's, it's worse than stick. So I sort of took the view that I wouldn't reveal it really until now. Yeah, which is fair enough. Uh, I mean, it's a strange one. The, the reason I know I knew about this was because I think the Brian fanzine back in the day, someone from the Brian fanzine found out that Martin was was a derby, and everyone was just like, "I tell you what, you'd never know. I'd have thought he's a red." Um, yeah. And and I, as a student, I did a very brief interview with with Martin. He's, he, um, he took the time to kind of um, respond to me, giving him a questionnaire and everything, and he said. Yeah, yeah, I I am a Derby fan. That's true. I was brought up a Derby fan, but let's just say that um, obviously you end up having sympathies with the team that you're covering. Yeah, exactly. Spot on. Mm. Um, so obviously you did cover, um, you know, what I think is for anyone who's around at that time, which would have been the worst day of their life. Um, worst day of their life as a football fan, certainly, but for many people, unfortunately, the worst day of their life ever. Um, I mean, presumably that was life-changing for you by the sounds of it. 
It was, but there were other things that happened in the build-up to that. That was it was a strange year, nineteen eighty-nine. Really, um, certainly locally, it started off with um, the plane coming down on the M1 in Kegworth, mm. and like as a working for Radio Nottingham at the time, everyone had to cover that, and it was probably as shocking thing as I'd ever seen at the time. And then on the the sports front, we had that mad time when uh, Forest Beat. QPR, the city ground, and Brian Clough sort of hit the fan, lashed out the fan or whatever. And I had to report on that. And um, I don't know why I did it, really. It sort of the, the, the night before, I think it was West, West Ham or something, also got through to a semi-final and there'd been sort of a pitch invasion and players carried on shoulders. And, and then the following night, this, this sort of incident happened. So um, that was a bit strange having to report on that because I said what I saw. Um, and then, um, and then, like a lifetime ambition, uh, early April 1989, pitch reporter at the League Cup final mm. against Luton. You know, standing on the pitch at Wembley, like wow, that's what I always wanted to do with the microphone and interviewing players as they came off. And then six days later, uh, travelling to Hillsborough, excited, full of excitement at the time. With my boyhood hero, Ian Story Moore, mm-hmm. he was uh, the summariser, um, my co-commentator, Jeremy Nicholas, and Martin Fisher, who um, sort of just joined the team. Um, and we had a great trip up. Um, um, start, I was presenting um, from two o'clock and... Yeah, so you just sort of you could you you sort of saw what was happening. I think we called it straight away. That there's just too many people in that 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 section of the ground. Uh, there was a time, of course, when uh, football fans and Liverpool fans were were often tarnished with being troublemakers, and because been the high saw disaster a few years earlier. So there was quite a lot of nastiness around when when play was stopped and some journalists getting angry and some Forest fans not knowing what was happening, but you know, within sort of 20, 25 minutes, you could see it was just the, the, the horror of it all. Um, having, you know, like the fans gone to watch a match, which they hope will be, you know, Wembley for Forest in the FA Cup, the trophy that Brian Clough had never won that he was desperate to win, you know, one of his favourite trophies. Um, just to see all this in front of your eyes and, and from a journalist's point of view, having to describe it and having to talk for for four hours, five hours, just provide effectively a running commentary was pretty harrowing. Um, At the time, you get by on adrenaline, which I guess is how, like, emergency services do that sort of stuff as well. But afterwards, it was was shocking just to reflect on it, uh, having having been so close to it and interviewed people who were caught up in it. It was um, just a, yeah, you say, you know, worst day, not of your only your sports life, football life of your career, but of your life to, to, to see that unfurl in front of you was just terribly shocking. And I think, um, it, it was a point in my life where I lost a love of football as well. Um, it's sort of the, the eighties have been a bit ugly actually, you know, as a fan sort of getting corralled around and being put behind pens and, uh, just, you know, fighting in the streets and all that. It just was, just a bit unpleasant, really. And I think this was, this sort of topped it off, really, for me and thinking, well, is this what it's about? Um, so um, 
yeah, at the end of that season, I got offered the chance of promotion, which was away from sport. And um, so I left the job that I always wanted to do. That I'd always, you know, like from a kid, I wanted to really work at, even though I'm a Derby fan, I really wanted to work at Radio Nottingham because it was a station I listened to as a kid. And, and uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so my time really... Uh, with Clough in the 80s was limited to uh, a season and a season that was pretty fractured by things like that. So when you come back to to these Midlands and Nottingham, particularly BBC Radio Nottingham, you are the host for Brian Clough's first radio phone-in. How did that come about? And also, how did you manage to, to get in... <laughs> to take part because he'd obviously long retired from football by that point yeah we, I mean we're fast forwarding 10 years and uh, you know after after Hill, and just after Hillsborough I went to work in Australia for um, uh, more than a year or so which it seems all good BBC radio and sports journalists do um, <laughs> and uh, yeah I came back and did different things and in 2000 I rejoined East Midlands Today as a, as a sports journalist working on TV and um and one of the first things that happened was that the Radio Nottingham had just started the sort of Monday night phone-in, where the, you know, the fans phone in, the moan-in, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and um, which sort of as a team suggested that we should approach Brian because he would be, you know, in my mind, like if there was ever a natural to appear on a fans phone-in, then Brian Clough was the man, you know, he was loved by Forest fans. He was entertaining and equally he loved the supporters. You know, he really engaged with supporters at every level, you know, he was ahead of his time really, when you think of like sort of social media age and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, Gary Bertels was doing quite a bit of work and we asked Gary what he thought the possibility was and Gary sort of brokered the deal really. And I think it was, 2000 that Brian Clough came to BBC to do his first ever phone-in. He went on to do more, um, but this was the, the first one ever. And uh, he was brilliant. You know, he's, he was past his prime, obviously, but the fans didn't mind that. They were just eating out of his hand. He could say whatever he liked. And, yeah, all his classics were there. You know, I remember the first person coming on uh, saying, Brian, it's an honour to talk to you. You're the greatest manager that there's ever been, hey, get on with it. And you say, you know, just like, just just pulling them all out there and really playing to the crowd. And it was phenomenal. And he was supposed to be sharing the programme with Gary Bertels. I think Bertels got about a minute and Brian <laughs> hugged the other 59. I suspect uh, Bertels probably knew that was going to be the case. When he, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, do you, if we have talked about of the obvious lows, would you say that actually having experiences like that is one of the highs, not just necessarily from a footballing point of view, but from a, from a journalistic and, and audience engagement point of view. Yes. Um, certainly like when you do stuff that, that uh, you know, that the audience love and you've pulled it off and that's from a, from a professional point of view, then that's fantastic. But I guess from a personal point of view, you know, it's the moments and the people that you interview that you take away, you know, throughout your career that are the, the real highs and, you know, uh, and I think all of us who work in sport and sports journalism know how lucky we are. I mean, you know, many of us have worked really hard to get there. And, you know, you work, it's a, it's a hard working career, but we know we're really lucky and we treasure moments like that in a way that 
I think, you know, we're fans too. And that's, as you can imagine, you know, you, you'd imagine it being there and doing it. And that's, that's exactly how we felt. Now, obviously, um, we, you know, you kindly told us, filled in a bit of the gap between uh, you leaving Radio Nottingham and then, and then coming back. Um, after that, you most famously, I think for people recently, uh, were the sports editor of East Midlands Today. Um, but you've now left the BBC, haven't you? So, um, yeah. uh, you know, firstly, was that weird for you to leave the BBC? And secondly, um, you know, how are you keeping yourself busy these days? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had uh, nearly 20 years at East Midlands today. And um, I'm sort of, we, we, it's a challenging job covering the East Midlands because, you know, it's uh, lots of rivalries in there to try and get the balance right. We certainly shifted it, you know, when I started, we made a deliberate play to do more football, to talk to fans. We really shifted the focus, more magazine style, lifestyle. I mean, it's increasingly hard to do that. But we, we really knew what we wanted to do. And we got some great figures. And I think we did a pretty good job over the years. It's harder as the years go by with more and more media wanting their piece of the cake and with the clubs doing their own stuff as well. So it's a real challenge. Um, so yeah, having done the job that I wanted to do and see, you know, left it after 34 years, it was really sad to leave, but I think it's been a weird year, hasn't it for everyone. So if you're to choose any time in your life to make a dramatic change, then like last year felt like it, you know, with all the COVID stuff. So, um, yeah, it was strange thinking like I might have to pay to go and watch football and stuff like that. <laughs> that. To be fair, I have done, but you know, like you could phone up and get into a press box most of the time and see it from a different view, uh, not have the same close ties with with players and managers that you've forged over the last couple of decades. So, um, yeah, t- um, a bit of sadness there. Um, but I, I more and more over the last few years, I I sort of have done. Lots of work with Olympic sport and Paralympic sport. Uh, fortunate enough to have been to the Olympics in London and Rio and was supposed to be in Tokyo last year and Paralympics and been Commonwealth Games. So I work for different parts of the BBC and different other organisations. And I love that, really. And I love the athletes that I'm commentating on there and, and interviewing there. So you can't do everything. I've had a great run. Loved watching football. I'm just really, really sad that, you know, I think... You know, you say, oh, what was your highlight of the last 20 years? And it's quite hard, isn't it? I mean, that's why I think, gosh, you know, the highlight of 20 years of Forest and Derby, to that matter. You know, you can come up with, like, the great days at Leicester City and the Olympic gold medals and the Paralympic gold medals. And I can think of the Leicester Tigers and the European wins and the Twickenham wins. But, like, there's not a lot, really, is there? You know, in those terms, I don't think, of the last, certainly the last 15 years. I mean, what... What is the highlight of the last 10 or 15 years? You know, wins, you know, good cup performances, wins against Derby and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, I guess what sticks in my mind perhaps is that, is the, the promotion day from, from League One. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, getting the cameras inside. It was, um, I was there, but Angela had the camera that went inside and seeing Nigel Doughty and the players and the joy and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's sort of iconic for me, really, of, of a time. But really sad that actually Forest should have been a much more successful club with a stable owner, a local owner with lots of money. And I don't quite know why it didn't work out. I still struggle with that. I think he probably got his fingers burned with David Platt. Probably should have 
backed Paul Hart more and uh, it just didn't happen really. And that's, that's a real sad. So um, yeah, I've gone waffling on really off, off, <laughs> off topic here, but um, yeah. So sad, sad to leave, um, uh, but it felt like a right time. And, and just briefly on that one. So obviously you're covering East Midlands, yeah. the classic, conversation that i'm sure you've heard many times and been accused of many times is bias towards one club or another yeah. so come on got it you gotta you gotta give me your perspective on this well i think it's really hard isn't it because wherever you see if you're a forest fan and you're seeing a story about derby county you're going to think eastern today is biased towards derby and and um without sort of getting a stopwatch out and measuring every second, which incidentally we had to do for a time, uh, not with sport, but for party politics at Radio Nottingham, we had to time to the second Labour Conservative Lib Dems back 10, 15 years ago. But we did an exercise and we, we did it a couple of times looking at how much Forest, Derby, Leicester, Tigers coverage we gave each week. And actually every time it came out a bit the same. It was about the same. But if you're watching on a Thursday and there's a piece on Nottingham Forest, but not a piece on Derby and Leicester, and you didn't watch Wednesday when there was a piece on Leicester, or you don't watch Friday when there's a piece on Derby, then you're going to complain and say this bias. And it's just, I just, yeah, especially when email came along and with social media, it's just something that we just have to accept, you know? And as long as we are true to ourselves, then I think that's, I would say it's as good as it can be, but at least we can be accountable to ourselves. And, and if people do complain, and of course we've got plenty of complaints, then we'd listen to it and we consider it. And I would always phone people up, you know, um, because I think actually I'd rather have a conversation rather than some sort of Twitter spat or email exchange. And, and uh, I think the big change really over the last 10, 15, 20 years is like, yeah, in those uh, 20 years ago, the journalists were like the authority and they were the people who, who had the, the knowledge and stuff like that. But I think, you know, with like, you know, your guys podcasting and blogs and stuff like that and all the sort of fanzines and stuff like that, things have changed dramatically. There's the, you know, the hierarchy is gone. So I think we, you know, we are one accountable, but two, we, we listen to the audience and if we get it wrong, we admit it and we do, we, we try and change it um so but I'll hopefully i'll pop up again uh, as a freelance now i've been a freelance since october um be great like now that lockdown's being lifted and we can go and perhaps you know be a bit freer with our reporting so hopefully there'll be a few more opportunities it may not be the last that uh you've seen on me on eastmanners today mm. well thank you very much mark but don't go anywhere because now we're about to play a game of guess that red Guess that red. So this is Guess That Red. We will give you, Mark, a number of clues to the identity of a Forest player and you've just got to guess which player that is. So question one, this player was a vital part of Brian Clough's second great team in the late 1980s, but he only stayed at the city ground for three years. Ooh. Vital part, three years. Ooh. Neil Webb? It's not Neil no, Webb, I'm no, afraid. No, 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 no. But this takes us on to 
onto clue number two. So he was an important part of the Forest midfield, making 103 appearances and scoring 17 goals. Ooh. When you said he was at three years, is that in one stint? It was in one stint, yes. So he could have he could have played Forest twice, but the he, three he, years in this one stint. He just had one spell, one spell at Forest. Oh, he had one spell at Forest. Yeah. Uh, it's not Hodgie. No Hodgie, right, okay. <laughs> See, does that count as a guess or not? Um, <laughs> sort of, yeah. Shall we move shall we move on, Stephen? Yeah, go on. <laughs> After his playing career ended in nineteen ninety nine, he eventually went on to become first team coach at Celtic, Bolton and Hibernian, often working with his former teammate, Neil Lennon. Say again. (laughs) I feel I should know this. After his playing career ended in 1999, he eventually went on to become a first-team coach at Celtic, Bolton and Hibernian, often working with his former teammate, Neil Lennon. I'm the mayor here, aren't I? We've established so you're not a Forest supporter. No, I know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> like, who's Scottish? Terry Wilson was around. Um, uh, it must be someone obvious that I'm missing. Uh, I'm going to give you a clue here. He's not necessarily <laughs> Scottish. All oh, right. Okay. Uh, We're going to have to hurry um, here, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, who's gone into coaching? Who was who a teammate of Neil Lennon? Oh, like. <laughs> let's, move, let's move on to the next one, because this might give you, this could be a giveaway, actually, um, for his time at Forest. So Forrest signed the player from Hull City, and after leaving the city ground, he went on to play uh, for yeah. Aston Villa Gary and Parker. Leicester City. Yeah. Parker. I was going to finish ah, off with, yeah. yeah. I was going to finish off with. Despite being a central midfielder, he played yeah. much of his best football for Forest in the number eleven shirt on the left wing. There we go. Ah, very good. So he was, uh, yeah. Obviously, he's a teammate of Neil Lennon uh, under Martin O'Neill over at Leicester, yeah. and that's how he forged that link. And he went on to coach um, as part of Lennon's team, along with Alan Thompson uh, at those clubs. So. Uh, and, and then, he, always course, gave, he always gave a great interview as well, Gary Parker. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he, uh, he, it's, it's strange to think he was only there for three years because when I was looking at the stats, it, it turns out he was at Villa for longer than he was at Forest and he was at Leicester for longer than he was at Villa and Forest. Yeah. So, um, and of course, the last clue would have been the obvious giveaway. So two of his most famous moments came at Wembley. Once was scoring a superb individual goal and the other one was when he was fouled by an opposition player who didn't even get booked. So obviously we're talking about the goal against Everton in the Simod Cup final yeah, and, of yes. course, being crocked in the first minute by Gazza with a chest-high kick. Yes, yeah. And the Simod, was that a 4-3? Th- I was trying to think about 4-3. Yeah, 4-3 yeah, against Everton. Yeah, I think Chapman they, scored two and Parker yeah. scored two. That's the one where they Forrest are defending a corner and Des Walker plays it out pretty much from the six-yard box, and Parker carries it and then 
drills it into the bottom corner. Yeah, yeah, great plan. Yeah, and, and actually probably underrated at the time, I think. so. As many of that Forest team were in 1989, I think. You know, yeah. the, the statistics speak for themselves where they finished year after year in the league. Um, you know, leave aside the Cups, they, they perform well in the league. And um, it was a, co- uh, a collection of well, it was similar, really, sort of good footballers that Clough moulded into a team. And of course, I'm a firm believer that, you know, that's not a bad start. You've got some good footballers and you've got a manager who can make the team greater than the sum of those parts. Exactly. And then you're onto a winner, aren't you? Yeah, let's hope that happens next season. <laughs> Fingers <laughs> crossed uh, for both Forest and, of course, for your beloved Derby County. <laughs> well, uh, I would Might say... cut that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We say a big thank you to Mark Shardlow for joining us for that very special interview. If you plunder our archives by visiting 1865.football, you can listen to some of our other interviews, including Reggie Nottingham's Mark Dennison... Transatlantic superfan Big Wes, Keith Harrison, the author of the book Talking Reds, former Forest player David Phillips, and more recently, football finance expert Kieran Maguire, and BBC Radio Nottingham's Aaron Verma and Alex Noble, talking about their experiences of reporting on a team that they love. Join us on social media, leave us a review, but in the meantime, thank you for listening to the 1865 podcast. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.